We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome back, everyone, to The Truth Perspective. It's April 4th. I am your host, Harrison Cayley, co-host... Elon Martin. Hey there. And joining us today in the studio, we've got SOT editors William Barbe. Hello, how's it going? And Brent, Brent Cope. Hey, hi there. And so today uh, we have a special guest. We've got Brandon Martinez joining us today. He is a Canadian independent writer and journalist who specializes in foreign policy issues, international affairs, and 20th and 21st century history. The last several years, he has written on Zionism, Israel and Palestine, American and Canadian foreign policy, war, terrorism, and deception in media and politics. His articles and analyses have appeared on Press TV, Veterans News Now, Media with Conscience News, Intifada Palestine, Information Clearinghouse, What Really Happened, Global Research, and we have carried some of his articles as well on Signs of the Times. He is the co-founder of nonalignedmedia.com and the author of three books now, Hidden History, Grand Deceptions, and his latest, The ISIS Conspiracy, How Israel and the West Manipulate Our Minds Through Fear. So, welcome to the show, Brandon. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. So yeah, um, I've, I just read your book recently. It's a collection of your late, uh, pretty much all your latest articles since the so-called you know war on ISIS began last year. Mm. And yeah, it's really good. It's it's really accessible, really well written, um, and it's it's pretty short, so you can Thank read you. it in in a few days. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's you know I've been following the whole ISIS development since it started. It really kicked off about a year ago is when it started to pick up steam. Mm-hmm. It seems like, you know, a few years ago, nobody had heard of ISIS. And nobody could really, if you want somebody on the street and said, that's ISIS, nobody could tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like there's been a sort of a policy change, right? Because originally we saw that, you know, there, there wasn't really this hoopla and hysteria and this craziness surrounding ISIS, which we see today in the media. It's just 24-7 constant, nonstop coverage of every every little ISIS atrocity. But, you know, originally, back during the Libya war, and this was about 2011, there was no mention of ISIS. In fact, the narrative at the time, and I delineate this in, in most of the articles in, in the book, is that the narrative was, the rebels in, in Libya were the good guys. They were just idealistic people who were trying to overthrow the dictator, right? That was mm-hmm. the, the, the popular narrative, and that's what we were hearing from Western politicians. And the, the story was Gaddafi's the evil dictator. He's killing his own people. There's this indigenous uprising in his country against his evil dictatorship, and we need to help these people depose this evil tyrant. So that was the story at the time that everybody was being fed in, and most people believed it. You know, they they felt like mm-hmm. we had to go in and, and 
do this humanitarian intervention and stop this evil dictator. It turned out that all of this was lies. This was all propaganda. This was all deceit. That you know, Libya was, you know, in Africa was was sort of a boon of progress in an otherwise bleak part of the world, right? And you know, it was the the best economy in Africa. Mm-hmm. So this idea that this wasn't you know an indigenous uprising that this was just discontent among people is false right because they they yeah. tried to they tried to brand it as part of like the, an extension of the arab spring you had some indigenous uprisings like in egypt and in tunisia and these other <coughs> dictatorships that were propped up by the west and the west was playing this very duplicitous game where they're pretending to be on the, on the side of the protests but were in fact still working with those regimes um, so there was there was definitely a, a genuineness to some of the Arab Spring, but the, trying to brand that Libya uprising as part of that was was definitely untrue. And you know, from the get go, Gaddafi even announced in his public speeches, he said, "This isn't some indigenous uprising. This is an Al Qaeda uprising." Mm-hmm. Right? He he constantly said that he said this is Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda is leading this revolt. This is an insurgency, and, and and it's not it's not legitimate. So you know what we have to, in order to understand this whole ISIS thing, we have to you know go back to into history and look at you know what is Al Qaeda, and you know ISIS seems to have sprung out of the womb of of Al Qaeda and this broader Wahhabi ideology, and you know what is that, and where did that stuff come from? So I try to delineate some of that stuff in the book. Well. Maybe we can we'll get into that a bit later. Um first of all, just maybe we can get into some some current events because the I mean the the whole the whole region in the Middle East has been just chaotic for years and so we had the Arab Spring this several years ago. We had Libya, this is then it's erupted into Syria, Iraq is still struggling and now just in the last week or so we've got an invasion of Yemen. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah, the the Yemen uh, fiasco started probably two months ago, maybe a month ago. Probably in February is when it it really got going. So this is where Yemen ha- has historically been, you know, a split country between north and south, and various you know imperial powers have tried to control it because it has it has some resources and you know some key ports that they want to control for oil purposes. But what happened was, you know, the dictatorship in Yemen was always backed by the, the, the Saudis and the Americans. And these Houthi rebels, the Houthi movement is is a group of Shia uh, Muslims who formed, uh, you know, a, a fighting force, basically, because they were being oppressed by the di- dictatorship in, in Sana'a which was sort of a Sunni Saudi oriented uh regime. So they basically took power and they overthrew the regime in, in Sana'a in February and they chased the the leader Hadi into hiding and, and he turned up in Saudi Arabia of all places being harbored by his, his benefactors and his backers. So the the Houthis were aligned with, with Iran Mm-hmm. They and and they're aligned with this sort of Shia arc of resistance, you could call it, with with uh, Hezbollah, 
Iran and and the Shiite militias who are fighting ISIS in Iraq. So there's this burgeoning alliance that that's formed since ISIS has you know been injected like a cancer into the region. Um, and so so the Houthis gaining power in Yemen just provided another sort of uh, another key point of resistance in the region to this American Israeli Saudi domination. Um, so the Saudis started bombing Yemen in response to this. Uh, completely, you know, out of the blue, they just sent in fighter jets. They have they tried to give their campaign uh, of aggression legitimacy by saying that oh we have ten countries on our side now, and of course all, all ten countries are dictatorships uh, sponsored by the West and propped mm-hmm. up by the West. So. That's rapidly unfolding. I don't know what the latest situation is, but there seems to be some some pitched battles between Houthis and the pro-Saudi forces in in Aden. I don't know what the latest development is, though. Well, the only uh, latest thing that I know of is that the Russia is calling for an emergency UN Security Council meeting, and they're actually holding it today on trying to put a pause on some of this. Uh, uh, Yemen atrocities that are going on, and I've read something about um, the the U.S. was pulling some of its people out, or it sounded like they were kind of trying to distance distance themselves from the from the aggression at this point. And I don't know what's going to happen with that if they're going to kind of commit themselves to a bit. Uh, Right. Yeah, I think I think Washington is passively supporting it. Like yeah. they don't want to, they don't want to directly intervene. But they, I've seen reports saying that Obama is is giving logistical support and other forms of support to the mm-hmm. Saudis. But it's very confusing. It's on the one hand, on the one hand, the Washington claims it's it's some grand opponent and and an adversary of quote radical Islam. But on the other hand, they they fervently support the Saudi, Saudi dictatorship, Arabia, yeah. which is a most fanatical Wahhabi style uh, system, where you have them, you know, still cutting people's heads off for for drug trafficking and in these menial offenses. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 they can't they can't maintain a narrative, a coherent narrative. You know, it's so contradictory and so confusing. You have um, I think it was Rand Paul. Who, the son of of Ron Paul, who went on CNN and he said, you know, we have this contradictory policy. You know, we're, on the one hand, we're fighting, quote unquote, fighting ISIS in Iraq, but uh, in Syria, we're actually aligned with ISIS. And we're supporting these rebels in in Syria to fight Assad. So, what is this? You know, what's going on? It's 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 confusing the people to make sense of all of this because it seems so contradictory. But when you take a step back and kind of look at the overarching overall um, agenda behind it, it, it does actually make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I try to argue in the book is that you know from the get-go, from day one, this whole Wahhabi uh, radical Islam was just a tool, a creation of of the West and their allies in the region you know the the british were involved with sort of fostering the ideology in, in its in its infancy and and sort of and, and of course it was the british that 
that installed the Saudi regime, the Saudi dictatorship monarchy back in, I think it was 1920s, and, and has supported it ever since. So it's always been kind of a tool to divide and conquer the Muslim world and use it as, as sort of just a, you know, a, a proxy to accomplish its you know, geopolitical mm-hmm. ends in the region. Well, and if we look at who else is supporting the Saudis here, um, I mean, I think I read that Israel is lending support to Saudi Arabia in this conflict as well. Yeah, that's yeah. that's another interesting <laughs> thing. It, you know, it, Israel, uh, you know, it it's actually aligned here with the most radical mm-hmm. Wahhabi elements. So what so what we have here is, you know, Israel. I think it was Israel's ambassador Michael Oren who he gave an interview back in 2013 to the Jerusalem Post, and he laid out very clearly what his what his government's agenda was, and he said, "Our main adversary right now is this arc Shia arc of resistance between uh, Damascus, Tehran, and Hezbollah," mm-hmm. and he says we prefer Al Qaeda to them. We prefer these radical Wahhabi to the, these these more moderate um, Muslim forces who have more you know military clout than than Al Qaeda does. But it, it, to me, it, you have to take a step back and say, well, why do they want? Why do they like Al Qaeda and ISIS better than than Iran? You know, than Syria, who, who the, the Syrian the president Assad is very secular. You know, these people are supposedly completely crazy, and they're just chopping people's heads off, and they're they're totally nuts, and they're willing to do suicide bombing. So, how is it that Israel's actually comfortable with that, and and trusts them more than than these these more moderate uh, forces? So, to me, we have to look at this and say, well, maybe it's because these these crazy types, these Wahhabi types, are actually controlled. And that Israel doesn't fear them because Israel perhaps controls them, and the West perhaps controls them and, and, and can dictate you know what their actions are. So this this idea that Al Qaeda and and ISIS and these other offshoots and franchises are are organic independent groups is simply unfeasible. It cannot be demonstrated to be true. Everything that they do seems to fall in line with this. Zio American Empire's agenda in the region, right? It, it, you know, when you, we look at what ISIS does, they only attack countries that uh, you know are on the other side of the Zio American Empire. They have only attacked you know countries like Iraq, Syria, Libya, Lebanon, mm-hmm. you know, Iran. These so are all the com- yeah, just the the countries that that uh, the, what was it, the the Israeli ambassador or in like that just happens to be several of those countries that he mentioned and several of the countries that historically have been on the radar of U.S. and Israeli foreign policy. I mean, right. coincidence? I mean, yeah, to believe that this is just a coincidence, it, it just beggars belief to me. And, you know, it, you know, from, from the get-go, going back to, to the Libya thing, we, we know that these groups are controlled. We know that they're being supported, that they're being funded and created by Western and Israeli intelligence. 
it was very it was quite open it was quite an open secret back in the Libya war that West was supporting the rebels there and it was and it was mm-hmm. pretty open that those rebels were al qaeda that were led by al qaeda franchises like the libya Libyan Islamic fighting group and other offshoots so the West was supporting these rebels funded them trained them armed them you know they used those Gulf sheikdoms, right, the the Saudis, Qataris, and whatnot, yeah. as sort of a proxy to to send funds and arms to those rebels and even fighters, because some of the like the fighters themselves were foreign. They weren't all they weren't all Libyan, right? And it's the same it's the same situation in Syria. I think it was uh, the Syrian regime said eighty three eighty three different countries. You know, there's, there's fighters from eighty three different countries fighting in Syria. These aren't indigenous people. These aren't Syrians, they weren't Libyans. They there's probably some some people in those countries that joined, yeah. but the, the the brunt of the fighters are are foreigners. They're they're hired, paid mercenaries and professional killers that are just shipped and transported wherever they're needed. Right? If you need them in Libya, that's where they are. If you need them in Syria, that's where they are. If you need them in Kosovo, if you need them in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. it's like they they just transport them wherever they need them. And you know, NATO supported those rebels in in Libya with with a bombing campaign, airstrikes against Gaddafi, and now the the, the situation is absolute chaos in the country, and all all of those those fighting groups that, that that were waging the insurgency in Libya have now been subsumed into ISIS. There's there's headlines in CNN that ISIS has taken over huge cities in Libya, and that all of those groups basically formed ISIS. It's like this umbrella network. You have all these different fighting groups. Like even in, in Syria, there's about, I heard there was about a thousand different fighting factions involved in the insurgency. But they just kind of just give it this broad name of ISIS. You know, but what what are they? I mean, mm-hmm. originally they were saying the, the America was saying, you know, we're only funding moderate vetted rebel groupings this was right. just a ruse a propaganda technique <clears throat> to distance themselves from from the radical elements but they were always radical from the beginning the fsa what they called a free syrian army was just uh just a propaganda cloak a front group to sort of funnel weapons to anybody who was willing to fight to, to fight assad and it, it was just sort of like this conduit between washington and ISIS and Al Nusra and the Al Qaeda groups, because you know they need they they can't they couldn't just come out and openly say yes we're going to fund these people we're going to fund ISIS so we had they had to establish this fake front group, which doesn't even really exist. All of the so-called Free Syrian Army fighters just defected to ISIS and Al Nusra anyway. Um, so you know it, it, it's like they they can't they can't keep a coherent narrative here. It, it's all unraveling, you know. Yeah, I I don't think I've ever um, in the three or four years since we've uh, been hearing about the uh, so-called uprising in the FSA in Syria, I don't think I remember hearing one even semi-legitimate representative of of that organization uh, speak cogently about any kind of uh, social reform or, um, or agenda that would make uh, you know the, the living standards, or or anything better in Syria. Um, I think, I think the only thing that that we've seen is John McCain uh, going to visit and and sitting in with a bunch of them, and and I, I don't even remember anything substantive coming out of that conversation. Right. I you know from the beginning, it's not like they 
they had any kind of policy plan going forward. They they didn't outline anything. There are there already is an opposition in Syria that try to work within the system and 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 get reforms that way. Um, but these people from from the get go were just militants who wanted to fight and wanted to overthrow the government. You know that they weren't even advocating anything serious. And uh, you know the the leader of the FSA, I think it was it was stationed in Turkey for a while, and that's where the, it's like this hub. But it, it was never a real organization. I mean, John McCain went over there just to create the the, the pretext that they're funding some moderates. Mm-hmm. I don't understand what what the distinction between a moderate and a radical is. I mean, what are they? How are they defining those terms? If you're an armed militant trying to overthrow a regime and you're and you're killing people to do it, I mean, how are you moderate? I guess their their suggestion was that they weren't religious extremists or something, um, but it turns out that they were because they, all like thousands upon thousands of fighters, so-called FSA fighters, joined ISIS, but no, without blinking an eye, you know. So it's just a fraudulent campaign from the beginning. And really, if the if the FSA and Al Nusra and the, all these other nebulous groups are considered moderate. What would they? What would you consider President Assad? I mean, because, right? Because right. he's in, in the region. He represents the more like a more moderate form of government, and it's it it's just yeah, it boggles my mind too how they can. And it's just right. a code word. I mean, they just you know they say moderate because if they were to just say what these guys really were, I mean, you wouldn't get popular support. You wouldn't be able to. Right, to right. have your propaganda put to any real effect in the in your own population, so I mean, yeah, they're just straight up distorting the language so that they can get what they want. And the fact that you know they say moderate doesn't really mean they're moderate; it just means that it sounds better right. to the masses when they're projecting it over right, the mainstream right. media. Right, it's just a marketing technique to sell it to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, Assad is moderate. You know, he's he's not a he's not a religious extremist. He he's he, he's he's very you know, educated and and cordial and his, if you've seen interviews of him he's he's not an extremist. I mean the idea that he's some brutal dictator tyrant. I mean the, the mainstream media to me is is such a joke because you know, I I saw a report recently. You know I went to journalism school for for about a year and, and they always tell you if you, if you're a news reporter like I'm an opinion writer so I I kind of use rhetoric and stuff myself but. If you're just a news reporter, you got to keep out this like fiery language from from your reports, that, like opinion opinionist terms and and rhetorical terms. You got to keep it out of a news report. But I just saw this report on TV. They they, they talked about Assad. And they said they referred to him as the lethal dictator Assad. <laughs> and I was like, this is journalism. Are you serious? Uh, it, and this is how they they get away with this, though. I mean, mm-hmm. the mainstream media gets away with this. And uh, it, it's just it just boggles my mind how crazy things have gotten. So um, I really enjoyed your deconstruction of ISIS uh, in a couple of your articles at your site, um, and you had some just a number of interesting quotes um, coming out of uh, the mouths of uh, Israeli politicians, in particular. Um, one of them, I just wanted to read a couple of them. This is um, by a gentleman named Oded Yunan, who is a uh, Likudnik, um, or yeah. part of the right-wing uh, 
party that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is a part of. And um, it was made 33 years ago in 1982. And these are your words, Brendan. Uh, in 1982, a stunning Israeli strategy paper was published, which outlined with remarkable candor a vast conspiracy to weaken, subjugate, and ultimately destroy all of Israel's military rivals. The document was called A Strategy for Israel in the 1980s, authored by Oded Yanan. And this is what he says, um, and I'd read this before, and, and you put it into a, this ISIS context, uh, which, which mm-hmm. I felt was uh, really appropriate as well. Um, he says, Lebanon's total dissolution into five provinces serves as a precedent for the entire Arab world, including Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and the Arabian Peninsula, and is already following that track. The dissolution of Syria and Iraq later on into ethnically or religiously unique areas, such as in Lebanon, is Israel's primary target on the Eastern Front in the long run, while the dissolution of the military power of those states serves as the primary short-term target. Syria will fall apart in accordance with its ethnic and religious structure into several states, states such as in present-day Lebanon, so that there will be a Shiite Alawi state along its coast, a Sunni state in the Aleppo area, another Sunni state in Damascus hostile to its northern neighbor, and the Druzes, who will set up a state, maybe even in our Golan, and certainly in the Haran and in, the, in northern Jordan. This state of affairs will be the guarantee for peace and security in the area in the long run, and that aim is already within our reach today. And here is just one more to complete the picture. Iraq, rich in oil on the one hand and in, internally torn on the other, is guaranteed as a ga- candidate for Israel's targets. Its dissolution is even more important for us than of Syria. Iraq is stronger than Syria. In the short run, it is Iraqi power which constitutes the greatest threat to Israel. An Iraqi-Iranian war will tear Iraq apart and cause its downfall at home, even before it is able to organize a struggle on a wide front against us. Every kind of inter-Arab confrontation will assist us in the short run and will shorten the way to the more important aim of breaking up Iraq into denominations, as in Syria and in Lebanon. In Iraq, a division into provinces along ethnic religious lines, as in Syria during Ottoman times, is possible. So three or more states will exist around the three major cities, Basra, Baghdad, and Mosul, and Shiite states in the south will separate from the Sunni and Kurdish north. It is possible that the present Iranian-Iraqi confrontation will deepen this polarization. Now, this was back in 82, so uh, the, mm-hmm. uh, the war between Iraq and Iran came to pass. Uh, right. uh, this is, to my mind... It's stunning. It's stunning. That lays it all out right there. Exactly. Yeah, and... <laughs> go, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean... You know, we, we can't really understand any of this without going back to those documents from, from the 80s and, and other documents that I quote that they kind of just repackaged, like the, the Clean Break document from 1996, which was written by um, Richard Pearl, Douglas Fife, and David Wormser. All three of them became leading members of the Bush administration pushing for the war in Iraq and creating all of the propaganda about WMDs and... Uh, you know, anthrax and all this stuff. This came from you know Douglas Fife's 
Office of Special Plans in the Pentagon. So this was a neocon propaganda effort from from the get go, and they're very candid about their plans. You know, they 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 write down what they're going to do mm-hmm. or what they hope to to see, and then they and then they go about implementing it by infiltrating the American government or or you know the British government or whatever the case is, and then they push for it, and then they they use the media. And their their access to mainstream media to propagandize the public, as you know, as we saw with you know William Crystal and Robert Kagan and these other neocons and these think tanks like PNAC and all these groups that they form, it's so amazing the coordination that they have. Um, but that Oded Yunan, I think that's the foundation of this policy, this like Kudnik, um, this like Kudnik vision for the Middle East, right? Is is just fracturing, breaking down and subjugating all of its military rivals. So when they talk about threats, they're saying Iran's a threat, Saddam's a threat. Well, a threat to to whom? A threat to your hegemony, to your domination of the region, to your continued, you know, oppression of of those peoples there. So when they when they mention threats, we have to look at, you know, whose spectacles are we supposed to put on Israel's spectacles? We're sitting here, I'm here in Canada, you guys are in America. We're supposed to view the world through Israel's spectacles? Well, according to most people in the region, Israel is a threat. Israel has nuclear weapons. Israel has aggressively invaded and occupied nearly all of its neighbors since it was formed. Israel has been ethnically cleansing the indigenous population of Palestine since 1948. Who's the aggressor here? Who's the, who's the danger? Who's the threat? Who's the menace? It's very clear that Israel is the danger. And then when we and then when we look at and go even further than that, and look at Israel's involvement in false flag terrorism, and 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 you know, attacking even their own allies to induce a response against their adversaries in the region, which they've consistently done since the King David Hotel bombing. That was the the sort of founding principle of 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 the Zionist regime was by way of deception was you know creating enemies and and getting others to fight your battles for you and that's what this this whole neocon movement was set up to do is to hoodwink uh, the, the Americans into fighting Israel's wars for her so Oded Yanan you know like you said he quoted there he he advocated breaking up all of these countries into ethnic and religious factions and then ludicrously asserting that that would bring peace and stability that would bring far more conflict and craziness to the region but it, it, from Israel's perspective it would bring it would bring a guarantee that they can't be challenged mm-hmm. so that he this is coded language right he's not being completely honest with you when he when he's saying that but he he's writing it from a Zionist perspective so you have to break it down from that angle but this is what we see unfolding, and this is—I try to connect the dots in that that essay that that you quoted from. It was called uh, the Destabilization Doctrine: ISIS Proxies and Patsies. That's one of the most popular ones that I wrote. And you know, we we see this unfolding. You know, we see that Iraq is being ripped apart. You know, we see that Syria is being ripped apart into smaller segments and factions. ISIS has declared its Islamic state, its caliphate, and this is that Sunni state that, that Oded Yunan talked about. And, and then you'll have the Alawite state, which is which Assad supposedly represents. And in Iraq today, we have this a similar thing. ISIS uh, pushes into Iraq, sets up its base there, declares itself a state. And then you have the Shia government in 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 Baghdad, and the Kurds, of course, are still battling for independence for the, for themselves. And I'm not necessarily 
um, against any of those those groups having independence or autonomy or whatnot. But the the problem is that it, it's being exploited. These divisions are being exploited um, for for Israel's hegemony. You know, it's it's, mm-hmm. it's you know Israel has supported that the Kurds for a long time and has you know, armed and trained them and so forth. Um, so you know, those people might have legitimate aspirations for for independence, and I can't say that they don't have a right to that. But but it's being they have to understand, they have to realize that when Israel's giving you arms, Israel's supporting you. That this is kind of dubious. Mm-hmm. You know, this is maybe you're being used for some broader conspiracy here, and you don't even know it. Um, so I think those people have to you know figure that out. Um, it, it it seems like that everything's being distorted though because. ISIS is 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 being pegged as like the grand, the great threat. You know, I, ISIS is is just a, a sideshow. ISIS is just you know this this lousy offshoot of of, of you know a, a, a terror group that the West created. But you know, the biggest threats to the world is not ISIS. I mean, ISIS wouldn't even exist without all of this support that they're getting. They they they're a nothing group. The only reason that they they're still in the fight in those countries. Is because they're they're getting a constant flow and stream of weapons and money from from the West and their proxies in the Gulf, and mm-hmm. Israel's been helping them in the Golan there with giving them hospital treatment and, and giving them weapons and sending them back into the fight and has been bombing Syrian military sites to to aid the insurgency, mm-hmm. which is why I said that on this I was on this uh, this pure uh, Zionist propaganda channel called Newsmax. They just invited me on. It was like a Sean Hannity type of character i was talking to and and i you know i told him this and he, he was just basically yelling at me every anytime i tried to talk but uh you know they they can't you know when we when we bring the pieces of the puzzle together like this they can't deny this i mean it's so obvious it's so clear what the agenda is from the get-go was to break down these countries and and i always bring it back to that declaration by general wesley clark you know back in in 2004, I think he revealed that the policy plan uh, of, of the U.S. regime was to take out seven countries in five years, right? And and what were those countries? Well, he said it was it was Iraq, uh, Iran, Afghanistan, Syria, Lebanon. Uh, I think it was Sudan and one other country. Sudan was ripped apart in in a, an artificial artificially induced civil war. Which the Israelis were heavily, heavily involved in. In fact, the, the, um, the, the I think it was one of the the top ministers in in the North Sudanese government came out and said that Israel was behind the civil war in Sudan. That they armed that the, the southern separatists gave them military support, trained them, and and induced and ignited the civil war there to break Sudan apart because Sudan, the Sudanese government was supporting Palestinians. So it seems like. The, the the underlying philosophy of all of this is to break down the regimes that n- not not so much because they're a military threat. I mean, Syria is not really Syria and Iraq, Saddam Saddam's Iraq were not much of a threat to Israel in terms of military capacity. Israel is armed to the teeth. They have the latest technologies and weapons sent to them from the United States, bankrolled by the United States. Supported by the biggest superpower in the world, this idea that those countries are a military threat to Israel is a weak claim. I think Israel embellishes threats, embellishes the the strength of these governments 
um, just to whip up hysteria and 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 get and garner more support from from the U.S. and, and the West. Um, but uh, the idea here is to break down any regime that could potentially support Israel's more direct adversaries, and that would be Hamas and Hezbollah, you know, and and the Palestinian. The Palestinians who are fighting for for a statehood and and who want the right of return, which Israel is in, is intent on and in preventing. Mm-hmm. So you know those are the countries that are being assailed here in this ISIS campaign. Syria, Iran, uh, you know Hezbollah is involved now. Hezbollah got drawn into the fight. That's what Israel exactly what Israel wanted. Mm-hmm. You know now now ISIS ISIS has said that their their next uh, target is Lebanon. How convenient, you know, how convenient yeah. that all of Israel's enemies are on the receiving end of ISIS violence, yeah. but none of is none of the puppet regimes are. Egypt, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, none of them have even seen an inkling of ISIS violence or in, incursions. And we're supposed to believe this is just a, a mere happenstance that ISIS is, is on side with the, the worst tyrants, the the, the, the the tyrannical regimes that it have been oppressing, you know, they claim they represent Muslims. These regimes have been oppressing Muslims, and they don't lift a finger against these governments, right? It, and Israel, you'd think that Israel would be one of the, the biggest targets, right? You'd think it would, <laughs> yeah. but but according to according to ISIS themselves, Israel is is of no interest or concern to them. Uh, they they even declared on Twitter. They said they said we'd rather go after quote unquote Muslim infidels, who the other versions of of Muslim, than Israel. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, yeah, because that makes sense. <laughs> Uh, it makes absolutely no sense, even from their crazy Wahhabi perspective. But it, it makes sense from when you understand that ISIS is a controlled group at the top. You know, in one of the articles in, in the essay, in, in, in the book, I, I quote from this New York Times article from 2007, and they said they were talking about Al Qaeda in Iraq. So this was sort of the, the precursor to ISIS, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the head of the U.S. military, his spokesman, said that the leader of the group, of that group, his name was Abdul Rashid al-Baghdadi, very similar name to, to ISIS's current boogeyman leader, Ab- Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. So this was the, the precursor, and they said that he was completely fake, that he didn't exist. He was an actor. All of his public declarations were voiced by an actor. And... They tried to spin it, though. They tried to pull the wool over our eyes in saying that Al-Qaeda itself was responsible for the deception because they were trying to put an Iraqi face on this Al-Qaeda splinter group in Iraq. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the narrative at the time, was this was during you know the, the, the brunt of the fighting in the Iraq war. So the the the, the anti-American insurgency that the, the fighters who were resisting the American occupation, large segments of them were were, were Iraqis people who were part of these Shia militias that are currently fighting ISIS today. I mean, these are the same kind of groups that were fighting the Americans. And and I've seen some documentaries, uh, recent Vice News documentaries, who follow around these Shia militias. And they say clearly, you know, the Americans are still our enemy, and mm-hmm. ISIS, and they created ISIS to to, to harm us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so th- that was the brunt of the resistance. It was an indigenous resistance against the American occupation. So, this, a very common tactic of imperial governments 
is to try to discredit that resistance, to discredit those fighters, to discredit the insurgency by associating it with religious extremists or, or you know people who are pretty pretty detestable, right? So mm-hmm. they created this Al Qaeda in Iraq as sort of this counter gang. It's that old you know British Empire tactic of creating a counter gang, giving it you know giving it the same kind of name or flavor as as an indigenous uprising insurgency associating it with that and having it commit atrocities like beheadings or whatever so the americans are behind that as a as a sort of a a, a, a pentagon psyop you know to to discredit the resistance and in, in, in basically to justify continued american involvement in the campaign because you know all like donald rumsfeld and all these american politicians were saying we have to be in Iraq because we have to destroy this group called Al-Qaeda in Iraq. They're terrorists. They're going to take over Iraq if we don't stay here and kill them, right? So yeah. it was just a propaganda ploy, and then you had this Al-Zarqawi guy who, who was like this you know, the cat with, with nine lives, and mm-hmm. he, he died, and then he was resurrected, he died. And it's the same with Osama bin Laden and all these shadowy, murky, elusive Al-Qaeda figures. I mean, they're, they they seem to just pop up everywhere. Um and, and when we go back to even the assassination, supposedly, of Osama bin Laden, completely fake. You know, he, yeah. he wasn't assassinated there. Um, they, they throw his corpse into the ocean so nobody can see it. It clearly propaganda. You know, bin Laden died probably in 2001, was killed. And they the, the media kind of just uh, kept the ghost of, of bin Laden, the phantom of bin Laden, alive to serve as a justification for continued American involvement in the war in Afghanistan and Pakistan and, and just an American presence there, right? So, it, you know, all of these things, you have to, we have to unpack it all. And it, it's confusing to people because there's so many red herrings and stuff that they mm-hmm. throw out there. But the, there seems to be a congruency to the whole thing, right? Yeah. Al-Qaeda, you know, we go back to, to, to the 1980s fully created and sponsored by the CIA to to fight the Russians and to cause problems for the, the, the what what they called the, the Soviet puppet regime in, in Kabul. You know, they created a, it's very similar it's like they they're just replaying the same tactics over and over again, right? They mm-hmm. they create this mercenary force, arm it to the T, sponsor it, send it in to cause problems for a regime, and then they use their own creation, their own Frankenstein as as a justification for further involvement, further engagement, you know, they, they created Al-Qaeda and then they declared war on Al-Qaeda, right? And then we saw a similar thing with ISIS. They create ISIS and then now they've said that we're, we're in a war that is completely fake as well. Well, you mentioned like al-Zarqawi and just like with the first al-Baghdadi, there was a report, I think it came out in was it 2007 or somewhere around there in the Washington Post, where, again, a top military, uh, you know, I can't remember what his position was. I think he had something to do with kind of information warfare. And he, there was this presentation given, and in that presentation, um, which the details of which the this Washington Post reporter had access to, it called al-Zarqawi, like something like the greatest PSYOP success in the Iraq war. And because for similar reasons as with al-Baghdadi, they they wanted to prop him up as this uh, kind of for uh, well not uh, well basically to de- delegitimize the uh, 
the insurgency, which was just cropping up naturally in response to the American occupation. So they'd, they've done it with Zarqawi, with Baghdadi, and the, the most recent Baghdadi, I mean, we never see him, right? There's maybe one picture of some guy that they say is Baghdadi, and that's it. I mean, it's <laughs> who is this guy? Where right. Where is he? And then, and then they did the same thing right. with Osama bin Laden. And that just, that can maybe get us into another area here, which is um, the, the, the kind of PR campaign of ISIS. I mean, you mentioned that they they declared on their Twitter page that they have no interest in attacking Israel. Well, you know, who is ISIS and why do they have a Twitter page? And, I mean, they've got these right. these slick propaganda videos. Um, well, maybe just, mm-hmm. you know, tell us your thoughts on on. ISIS's propaganda, like the all, the, yeah. all these videos that get released. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned Zarqawi as a psyop, al-Baghdadi and, and bin Laden, and, and these people seem to be, it's almost like, you know, the, 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 the master manipulators are just contriving these people, creating them as just, uh, you know, for public relations purposes, that these are basically actors, that they're not even you know real people i mean they they exist perhaps but they're they're not genuine in their public statements you know bin laden for example would would he he'd say some interesting things you know and in my book grand deceptions where i talk about 911 i i quote him in an interview right after 911 where he he basically said that that he didn't do 911 and that it was done by by the uh, israeli intelligence and, and american cia and he gave some pretty interesting arguments for why why that's the case. So he he it, it's like there's two different Bin Laden. There's, there's the guy who makes statements like that, but then there's there's the the, the Bin Laden who's meeting with CIA agents in in hospitals and so forth. Mm-hmm. There, there's reports of him, you know, still meet still in connection with the CIA going up all the way through the 90s into the early 2000s. So it it seems like they create false opposition. You know, they they create these boogeyman enemies that they use to justify foreign adventures. Same thing with ISIS, you know, like this Baghdadi is a very elusive character. You, you, nobody's ever really seen him. There's one video, some people say that that he's in that photo with yeah. John McCain. I don't, I don't know if that's confirmed or anything, but nobody knows who this guy is. You know, his background is super murky and, and he he could be just a total fake, you know. He could just be a pure PR. That he, he he's just an actor, like the previous leader of Al Qaeda in Iraq. Admittedly, was an actor, was fake, didn't even exist. So you know this this whole this this whole thing about ISIS being just springing up out of a hole in the ground one day and accruing this massive fighting force with and all these weapons, you know, and they have Twitter pages and they got like HBO quality. You know, execution videos with like you know the perfect soundtracks. It's, it's mm-hmm. utterly insane. And you know, where are they getting the expertise for this? I mean, supposedly they're running around the desert fighting Assad, but they have the wherewithal and, and, the, and the expertise to make like some slick video. You know, it, it's all PR to me. That this is all just you know, the, all of this stuff could be cooked up in some CIA movie studio, you know, they go, how do we know, How we can't confirm where, who's making the video, where it's being made, who these masked people are who are carrying out these executions, who are these people, you know, 
And you know, most of the videos get picked up by this this group called Sight, by who's run, was run by Rita Katz, who's an Israeli citizen, and her, her father was a, killed in Iraq as a spy back in the '60s. And she got she gets a hold of all these videos even before ISIS puts them out. She gets them somehow, and she puts them out. Hmm. Maybe you know, maybe she she was involved in the production of them. How do we know? You know, like so. So to me, and you know, ISIS has. Twitter pages and, and they're arresting people in the West who are just like tw- retweeting ISIS stuff and and that you have this whole phenomenon about you know Western recruits to ISIS you know this is the new scaremongering campaign there's all these foreign fighters for ISIS and they're coming from the West and you know I just asked the question in some of those articles well how are they doing that how are they leaving the country and joining ISIS without the intelligence agencies knowing about it or stopping them preventing them. Well, uh, to, you know, to get into that a bit, right. um, well, first of all, you mentioned SITE, and in Canada, at least, soon after the, the Ottawa shootings, we had a, a video that was released again by SITE um, of the, the Canadian uh, John McGuire, you know, calling for retaliation against Canada for its involvement in the, the airstrikes in Syria. And right. so, you know, just to, to make the connection, but then I mean, you ask about the, all these foreign fighters and the people getting into, into Syria and Iraq. And maybe if we could go over again to Canada for a second, we had recently a kind of scandal in Turkey when it was revealed that there was a, a CSIS uh, uh, officer or agent or whomever, um, and CSIS is Canada's intelligence agency, who was implicated in basically like human trafficking, letting these... Uh, getting people into Syria, and specifically those three British girls. Um, maybe you could give us some of the details about that. Uh, sure. That was that was perfect timing when that story broke, because this came just as the Harper regime, which is a fanatical, you know, reprehensible neocon pro-Zionist regime, was pushing this Bill C-51, the new anti-terrorism legislation. We have to save you from ISIS, so give us all your freedoms. Like Let Canadian us spy Patriot on you. Act. Mm-hmm. Right. Even worse than that, you know, it has things in there like terrorism propaganda is now a punishable offense. What What does that mean? You know, if, if you say that Palestinians have a right to defend themselves against Israeli state terrorism, you're a propagandist for terrorism now? Like, it's so broad and, and you know, just arrest anybody for anything, really. Um, and, you know, just as that was being pushed and railroaded through Parliament, um, this scandal broke, which is very sort of bad timing for the Harper regime, that CSIS was working and employing a, a Syrian national who was operating out of Turkey and, and Jordan, who was acting as a human trafficker for ISIS. So he's, this guy was helping people from Europe go to Turkey and then into Syria to join ISIS. And, and apparently, you know, he helped these three British school girls who I presume would be not be soldiers, but would, but would be some sort of sex slaves for, for ISIS fighters. So we have CSIS actually employing an ISIS recruiter. This is the story. And he, he was working out of, out of this Canadian embassy in Jordan, and the head of the embassy was a guy named Bruno San, Santo Maio or something like that. And he was... Uh, handpicked by Stephen Harper to be the, the ambassador to Jordan. He used to be RCMP. He used to be part of Stephen Harper's personal security detail. Huh. So we have a guy that was handpicked by Harper to be the ambassador to Jordan 
and they're running this ISIS recruiter out of that embassy. So this this almost links Harper directly to ISIS, and 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 he's he's you know co- constantly pontificating in the parliament about ISIS, the threat of ISIS, and, and it's such a joke, you know. Like he he's he's committing uh, you know air air forces to this fake bombing campaign of ISIS. Um, and and what happened with that, just to, to give you the, the end story, is nothing really came out of it. Basically, mm-hmm. this CSIS just denied it, said we don't comment on stuff like that, and it's kind of died down. You know, like the, the mainstream media, I was surprised that they even ran the story, like CBC and Globe and Mail and all these mainstream media in Canada covered it. And the, but they they tried to twist it and they and they just uncritically reported the CSIS denial as if that's credible. Oh, CSIS denies that they're ru- they're running an ISIS recruiter. So let's just that's it. End, end of story. You know the mainstream media is is just totally complicit with this. Um, but but to me this is this is an indicative of a broader um, pattern of Western intelligence agencies. Working with ISIS directly, that that they're helping ISIS get recruits from the West. That they're literally trying to fill the ranks of ISIS and send these lunatics over there, these disenfranchised youth with no future. They just go go trolling for these people. Like they they send informants into mosques, and they just troll for impressionable youth to recruit and send over there as cannon fodder. So to me, this is like a broader campaign by the West to, you know, continually flood ISIS with weapons, with bodies, with cash, with everything it needs to accomplish what the West wants it to do, which is to overthrow Assad, which it hasn't successfully done yet, so they have to continually support it. And, uh, you know, to, you know, people are going to try to shoot down my theory by saying, oh, well, look, they, they arrested some ISIS, some person who was trying to join ISIS. Look, they arrested this person in Texas. Look, they arrested this person here and there. To me, this is just PR that that mm-hmm. they, exactly. they allow they allow hundreds to go join ISIS and do nothing to stop them and help them, and then they all arrest like one guy and say, "Look, we're we're trying to crack down," when they're not really. You know, it's just a PR thing. And then the guys they do arrest, like uh, I don't know if there are any more details on this story yet, but just recently there was a a man in Canada on Prince Edward Island that was arrested. For how do they put it? Um, they believed that he that he might commit an act of terror in the future. <laughs> I mean, and yeah, thought crimes. Yeah, and and so so the the people that they do arrest. I mean, because you can't be waging a war on uh, a group like ISIS without having some results that you can bring back to people, right? So I mean, you've got to you've got to. Uh, fire out some ineffective airstrikes just to show that you're doing something. You've got to make a few arrests just to show that there there is a problem and that you're doing something about it. All the while, like you said, Brandon, they're sending hundreds and thousands of people over there to actually be be ISIS, to be the guys on the ground doing these sorts of things. And at the same time, by arresting certain people on just the flimsiest of pretexts, that that establishes this kind of precedent for clamping down on any kind of dissent or just any kind of what right. might be perceived as an internal threat to to these governments. So I mean it works right. it works in every way for these guys. And it's super obvious to anybody that's actually like paying attention, reading articles, you know, like especially like alternative news sites. You're not going to get any legitimate news from the mainstream media. 
you're just going to get the spin. Um, but when you actually look at places that are reporting the facts on the ground and doing it consistently, you can kind of see that the, this overall picture is is clear. Um, but then, you know, most people don't have the time, energy, or interest to to follow that. You know, they're just leaving CNN on in the background. They're worrying about their own finances, their own family dramas, and all kinds of things. They're just focused on themselves. So it just yeah. comes back to them. You know, they have pretty solid control of the mainstream media. It's all that's been consolidated. And they just use that as a tool to blast this BS propaganda nonstop. And, and people don't get any alternative unless they really go digging. And, right. you know, there's probably a percentage of people out there, especially in the U.S., who probably still think that Saddam Hussein had something to do with 9-11. Yeah. Uh, that was connected uh, in a lot of people's minds, and, and it was never uh, due to bad information or lack of critical thinking. It was never corrected. Right. I mean, you know, I talk about that in my book, Grand Deception, so... People actually believed that Saddam Hussein did 9/11 and Iraq did 9/11, and it was the neocons who who created that propaganda, who injected that into the narrative, because they you know Afghanistan to them was sort of a sideshow, but you know we can get into that a bit later. But I just wanted to say back on this ISIS thing, you know the the West claims it's it's trying to destroy ISIS. There's supposedly 60 plus countries part of this coalition, including the world's sole superpower, the United States, including Britain, who's one of the top five militaries in the world, Canada, Australia. So we have the greatest powers in the world, except for Russia, China, in a coalition to defeat a bunch of guys running around the desert with Kalashnikovs and a few jeeps and, and a few tanks that they stole. And somehow they can't defeat ISIS. I mean... For, for for your average person, I mean, maybe that's believable for somebody who has absolutely no clue how military and intelligence and this stuff operates and works. But for anybody who's been following geopolitics and, and knows the, the strength of different militaries and military forces, this is completely insane. They could destroy ISIS overnight, mm -hmm. and, and probably in a week, within a week they could destroy ISIS. They could just target their command centers, bomb them to oblivion, and they're done. Right, they, they won't be able to recover if you kill all their commanders and you kill and you take out all their command centers. They're completely disoriented and they they can't fight anymore. So, it, it's it's completely obvious that this is fake and this isn't a serious campaign. It is disingenuous. It is PR. It is sort of a you know a way for the West to try to distance itself from its own creation. Right. Same with the Al Qaeda thing. It seems like they're just repackaging everything and doing it over again. That's a great way to funnel tax dollars too into the the you know the military industrial complex and and all the countries that are involved. So they drop right. bombs and they need to send aircraft and they spend money on fuel and all kinds of stuff and it just funnels money upward and that's that's mm -hmm. our tax dollars that just get sucked away. It's ridiculous. And these regimes at the same time are using the the, the fear mongering campaign surrounding ISIS to pass all kinds of laws that take our rights away and, and, and bolster the police state and bolster the intelligence services, give them more power, give them bigger budgets. All of these regimes are doing it. The Canada, Australia, the United States, mm -hmm. Britain, France, all these countries are doing it. They're, they're all simul it's like there's this simultaneous agenda. Like They just get a memo from some command center in Washington or Tel Aviv or London and say, do this, pass this law. We're going to use ISIS as the new scarecrow to push this agenda, to push this global police state. 
And you know, I think it was Assad that said, he pointed out this very logical thing. He's like, my Air Force is far smaller than all of these countries that are in the coalition, yet we're conducting far more airstrikes and real bombing a campaign against ISIS. Mm-hmm. So we have 60-plus countries whose combined military might is conducting far less of an effort to defeat ISIS. So that they're not serious about this. They're not actually trying to defeat ISIS, that they're just claiming that they are. They're just This is just a PR campaign. And it was incredible because I wrote an article back in August 2014, and uh, I actually predicted everything that would happen. I said... They're gonna they're gonna turn on ISIS. They're, they've they've created it. They're gonna turn on it. They're gonna say they're at war with it. They're gonna try to start bombing it or claim that they are, and they're gonna accidentally quote unquote start hitting Iraqi police and military forces who are actually fighting ISIS. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 it's not that I'm psychic. It's just that <laughs> I've seen it before so many times that it's predictable. You know, it's it's completely in line with with previous policies that they've conducted in other countries. So and this is what we see happening. I just quoted from a Russia Today report saying that 22 Iraqi soldiers were killed in a U.S. airstrike uh, a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and and periodically we see you know Shiite militia forces being hit by U.S. airstrikes that they're taking out Shiite fighters who are fighting ISIS while they're claiming that they're they're they're, they're targeting ISIS. They just say it's an accident, just like they say that when they drop these weapons caches that they claim are going to the Kurds, just fall into the hands of ISIS miraculously. Oh, sorry, we dropped some weapons to people who are trying to kill you. Our yeah. bad. You know, Those are the ones that we hear about, too. You know, there's, there's probably, you know, that's probably the tip of the iceberg. Right. I mean, that's just the stuff that, that's been reported. How do we know what's going on on the ground? Mm-hmm. But all these Iraqi uh, parliamentarians and military people and militia leaders, like I quoted from a New York Times article that, that interviewed some of them, and they say very candidly, they, they say ISIS, they, they say America created ISIS, and, they, and we don't trust them, and they boycotted American involvement in this, this coalition to fight ISIS. They said, we don't want the U.S. involved because we can't trust them. They, they, they've killed our fighters. They claim it's an accident. We don't believe it. They're trying to contain our fight because they don't want to destroy ISIS. The real target is the Shia arc of resistance. The real target is is the alliance between Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, or Hezbollah in particular, and now the Houthis. And they and, and the U.S. has green-lighted this attack on on Yemen with, with a similar outcome. Well, the the attack on the Houthis comes at a similar in, agenda. You know, I'm every sorry. time I see. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the. The attack on the Houthis comes at an interesting time because, uh, like you mentioned, they are supported by Iran. It almost seems to me like they the the per- one of the purposes of this might have been to kind of goad Iran into taking a more active role and maybe even getting involved somehow uh, in the conflict in Yemen. And this comes just at the time where we have these negotiations going on about Iran's alleged you know nuclear weapons program, which is non-existent. But um, and then just in the last couple of days, we've had reports coming out saying that it looks like there is a deal going to be made with Iran. Um, have you been following that? Or do you have any thoughts about what's going on with Iran at the moment? Yeah, 
Sure, yeah. I think um, we have sort of build up to a deal with one. You know, I always laugh and say, it, first of all, I don't want to give any clear legitimacy to, to any kind of U.S. <laughs> dealings with other countries. Like the, U, the U.S., we're supposed to believe that has a right to to other countries, what city should be, what should be, or that should be. I don't accept that premise that the U.S. is the one to to, to be the arbiter in this kind of thing and be the the one who's who's laying out the ground rules for you know what what, what other countries can do in terms of nuclear capacity. The fact is that if Iran wants a nuclear weapon, I'm against all nuclear weapons. Just, just off the bat, I think every country should disarm them. I mean, they, they're just tools of mass destruction mm-hmm. and death, and why would we want these on, on the planet? But the fact is that they do exist, and the only countries that have them are, are, are countries that, that certainly shouldn't have them and, and have been proven to be bad actors on the world stage. You know, the United States is the only country that's ever used nuclear weapons during the Second World War against Japan. So if there's any country that shouldn't have or should be banned and prohibited from having nukes, it's the U.S. And certainly Israel high up on the list of people who should be, of countries that should be banned from having nukes because they're they themselves to be an aggressive warlike state that just wants to attack and invade and subjugate and, and subdue anybody that they don't like. That it doesn't kowtow to their agenda. So if Iran decides that they want a nuclear weapon for a deterrent thing, for 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 uh, you know just deterring their enemies, um, then and they have they have a right to get one. Um, and, and it's not for the U.S. to say that they shouldn't. I mean, they the only reason Iran want the Ayatollah said we were against nuclear weapons. He said it's haram, it's forbidden in Islam. But the only re- reason they'd want to get one is to is to deter the big powers from invading Iran, right? It's the mm-hmm. ultimate deterrent. Israel has nuclear weapons in the region. Uh, it's one of the only countries in, in the region other than Pakistan, I believe. But um, but that that would make sense for Iran to to want to get that just just as the deterrent. Seeing all these countries surrounding Iran getting invaded, Afghanistan, Iraq, two countries bordering Iran, invaded by the United States, destroyed right on their doorstep. You know that mm-hmm. the empire is right on their doorstep, and we're supposed to believe that they are crazy because they want a nuke. You know it, it's an absurd narrative, but. This deal that's going on, I don't know the exact terms of it. I guess Iran has to kind of tone down their nuclear, the centrifuges or whatever mm-hmm. yeah. um, in exchange for lifting of the sanctions. I guess that, that's that's good in a sense because Iran, one, they, they don't even want a nuclear weapon, say it's forbidden, and, and they're going to have some sanctions lifted, which will help their people and and will be beneficial to their economy. Um so uh, you know, in terms of yeah, I, I guess they're trying to induce Iran into further conflicts in the region to try to bog them down in a way and 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 draw them into these these quagmires, you know. Like in I, I, Iran, as far as I know, has a, an agreement, a defense pact with Syria. So you know, whenever Syria is attacked, Iran promises to back them up, in, at least on paper. So they they were drawn into this this campaign against ISIS in in Syria, and and this is just um you know th- this is just a perfect way to have all of Israel's enemies you know at each other's throats 
and and not focusing on Israel. You know, like uh, uh, Iran and and Hezbollah and and Syria, their their main focus actually was Israel. You know, that they they said, you know, Israel is the main adversary here. It's a foreign injection into our region. It's here to dominate us. It's here to um as a malignant force to to harm the region and you know Israel is is you know always trying to stir up problems with its enemies to to take the attention off of Israel you know to put it somewhere else mm-hmm. and it's always trying to create false flags and and pretexts to do that and also to to have its allies do its bidding for it right and and Netanyahu you know go, goes to the United Nations and and holds up this ridiculous cartoon of a, of a of a bomb. Looks like it's from uh, the Roadrunner cartoon, and it says proof Iran's going for a nuke. I've drawn a picture of a of a bomb, so that's proof. And so so what he's doing is he's just trying to def- like he doesn't even believe Iran. I guarantee you, Netanyahu doesn't believe Iran is even trying to get nuclear weapons. Yeah. This is all propaganda to just deflect attention from the fact that Israel has nuclear weapons. To deflect attention from from Israel's um, Israel's onslaught in Gaza, Israel's uh, continued policy of of ethnically cleansing, you know, the West Bank and Gaza. This is this is a lot of it is is intended as as misdirection and, and PR for the Western populace to take the attention off of Israel because Israel has been getting a lot of heat. You know, Israel. You know, there's there's all these there's, the BDS movement has picked up steam. You have you know conferences everywhere now talking about you know Israel's atrocities and even questioning Israel's quote unquote right to exist, which is a ludicrous assumption, and and it, it's being it's being targeted. You know a lot of people are waking up to this, and even America, a lot of American groups are are now you know campaign campaigning to end U.S. aid to Israel, right? So a, a lot of this propaganda is is is. Zionist propaganda designed to, you know, shift public attention and focus off of what Israel's doing and have it onto its enemies. And and Netanyahu even said this. He went on Meet the Press and he said, firstly, he said, you know, we, I don't want Obama to attack ISIS. I want ISIS and the Shia and Sunni to fight each other so they can weaken each other. You know, he he is part of this divide and conquer thing strategy and you know he 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 also said that this is proof the fact that ISIS is is killing people and committing atrocities and beheadings and whatever he's like look this is proof that Israel is the only rational actor in the region Israel is Israel is the only civilized country in the region they're all all these other ones are 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 killing each other and beheading each other and they're they're not civilized so you have to support the only boon of civilization in the Middle East, and of course, he is not telling you that it, it, it's the Israelis behind the scenes who have instigated all of these all of these fights and battles, and have uh, who have fueled all these insurgencies in, in the West in the West as well. Um, so it, it, it's all propaganda. It's all, it's all PR and and just deception. And it goes and, and you know I, I try to connect all the dots with this, and and, and for the most part. And maybe you disagree with me. For the most part, all roads lead to Tel Aviv. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. um, you know that there's there's some. Some would argue that 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 there's some sort of you know corporate interest in in these battles. To me, it 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 doesn't 
really add up because in terms of business interests, businesses don't flourish in, in conflict zones. I mean, the only business that flourishes in conflict zones is the weapons industry. But you know, the, just because there's there's a an, a benefactor to a conflict doesn't mean that they instigated the conflict, right? Mm-hmm. They kind of just came in and and benefited from the situation. Yeah. But to me, we have to look at what is the overarching policy plan and agenda behind it. And, I, and the, the most convincing thing that that I found is is those Israeli those Israeli geopolitical strategies and documents where they 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 lay it out quite clearly. You know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to fragment all of our rivals. And then you know, when we tie that in with the neocon proclamations and the Clean Break report and then the Project for the New American Century reports from 2000, which said, you know, we need a new Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And then we look into 9-11 and what was behind 9-11, who was behind it. And we find very much the same players. You know, the Israelis uh, were involved, heavily involved in mm-hmm. 9-11, which I cover in my book, Grand Deception, the first six chapters. So it, it seems like there's very familiar themes and 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 forces behind all of this madness. It, there, there's there's a coordinated effort. It's not just some random thing that these these politicians are just like just crazy and they're just coming up with these contradictory policies. You know, there seems to be a congruency and, and, and a, an agenda behind all of it. You you pretty much just kind of answered what I wanted to ask you next uh, in part, but I wonder if. Um, Brandon, you can even underline it a little further uh, and and state, you know, is Israel looking for complete uh, hegemonic power over the Middle East? Is that the ultimate objective? Is it just to uh, is it just to not have these uh, these existential threats or threats of uh, uh, Shia dominated countries that that can be uh, potentially threatening? To them, or is it really more a um, kind of uh, a goal, an ultimate goal uh, for them to want to have some kind of total dominance over most of these countries? Yeah, um, I think that that that's 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 the the, the basic structure of of all of these you know war policies seems to me to be dominance over the region. Um, also, they're, they're extremely paranoid about the demographics of Israel itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that they're always campaigning against... Um, Brown people? It, yeah, right, right. So they're always, they're always saying, you know, we have this demographic threat to the Jewish state. They want to maintain the, the Jewish uh, majority in, in, in Israel. Um, which is kind of weird because they they have kind of an opposite agenda in the West. There's a lot of Zionist groups that that support multiculturalism in the West, but then they're completely against it for Israel, which seems like another divide and conquer strategy. But um, so the, they're they're very concerned about just keeping Israel intact as this Jewish stronghold, as a Jewish majority state, and and keeping the Palestinians at bay, keeping other immigrants at bay like the, uh, recently they rounded up a bunch of um black immigrants from Africa mm-hmm. and they put them in prison camps and they're calling for them to be expelled and so forth so i think they're just completely obsessed with with maintaining this jewish state in in the region and and keeping their their supposed adversaries at bay um 
and 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 breaking down those regimes surrounding it you know serves a few purposes one is to prevent any rival in the region from challenging israeli hegemony but also preventing those governments from supporting what israel considers its internal adversaries which would be the palestinians as a whole you know these 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 israeli politicians have come out and, and made genocidal declarations saying you know all the Palestinian people are are our enemies. Just their presence here is a threat to us. You know, we we mm-hmm. need to kick them out. We need to expel them, and um, and that's what they sought to do back in the 80s. You know, during that that Lebanon invasion in 1982, Israel went in there firstly to to break up Lebanon and create a civil conflict in the country, as per the Oded Yanan plan, which they did. You know, they armed. They armed those Christian militias in in Lebanon who carried out the Sabra Shatila massacre. Right. Th- those were armed, trained, and and propagandized by Israel to hate the Palestinians. And, and there there was like these Palestinian refugee refugee camps in Lebanon that that were targeted by the Israeli proxies. So they went after you know they they went after the the, the Palestinian refugees there to destroy them and and break up Lebanon, who they saw as a military threat. Um, so I think that that's the, the 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 mindset of the neocons and their you know Zionist uh, string pullers in Tel Aviv is this you know overarching thing about subjugating their foes. This goes back to the Oded Yanan plan, and they've kind of just rebranded and reworked it into into a modern context. And that's what I think that the, the overall goal. But you know, some would even argue. Um, like Benjamin Net or not Netanyahu, it was it was David Ben Gurion, the the first the first Prime Minister of Israel, mm-hmm. who 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 gave this incredible speech back in nineteen it wasn't a speech, it was an interview with a magazine in nineteen sixty two and and he he gave this prediction. He's a, he he predicted the outcome of the future. You know, he he thinks he's some sort of prophet. And uh he he said he said, you know, that the entire planet will become united in a world alliance, save for the Soviet Union. And he said there will be an international police force. There will be no more wars. And, uh, and, 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 and he said there will also be, they would build a shrine to serve the federa- federated union of all continents as prophesied by Isaiah in Jerusalem. They'd build like a shrine, um, to, to serve to, to be to be the centerfold of of this new world order that he envisioned this grandiose plan world government you know it's, it's hard to say exactly what what Netanyahu thinks and what what his 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 position is vis-a-vis vis-a-vis world government but it seems like some of these these Zionist uh, leaders have this kind of one worldist Kind of vision, you know what I mean? Like they they want to put down any kind of resistance to some sort of global applied um, run out of Jerusalem. You know that that is an absolutely authenticated interview, and he and he, he said that he was the, the founder, basically the founder of Israel, um, and and the neocons very much speak that language. You know they they talk about. You know, creating, making the world safe for democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever that means. And democracy, t- to me, seems to be like this code word for, you know, for Israel or you know, making the world safer 
for 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 them and, and their interests and in, in making the growing it. Uh, so you know um, whether they have it, there's definitely a, a, a local uh, part of the plan in terms of the Middle East itself, but there there also seems to be more of a global reach to it because you know we we see Western governments passing laws that take away our rights under pretext of terrorism and, and, and the terrorist threat is completely fabricated created by these same forces you know the, the Israeli intelligence and Western intelligence together fabricated incidents you know we, right when they declare war August 2014 the fake coalition all these so-called incidents started to happen you had the you had the Sydney siege. You had the Paris Charlie Hebdo shooting, Copenhagen shooting, and all of these events just miraculously pop up out of non queue for this new campaign to defeat ISIS. You mm-hmm. know, and and the end result of all of those shootings was anti-terror laws that take away your rights, give um, unlimited powers to the intelligence agencies. And more power to government to clamp down on on your speech, on political dissent. You had David Cameron, the the Prime Minister of the United Nations, speech, and he said he said a nonviolent extremists are the new threat. They're just as bad as ISIS, right? He yeah. he said conspiracy theorists, people who question the government's version of nine eleven, seven seven, other terrorist attacks. Anyone who questions that is akin. To ISIS, you know, they're 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 trying to associate anybody who questions this war on terror mythology, this this global propaganda by these governments um, to convince us that we we should you know relinquish all of our rights and freedoms and and trust in the government to to save us from the terrorists, right? It, it, there, there's sort of a two pronged assault going on. You have the, the the actual fighting going on in the Middle East. And as part of this Israeli geopolitical scheme, but then back at home, they're trying to snuff out dissidents and critics of that who are exposing the gambit. You know, and and this eventually would target people like me, people like you guys, mm-hmm. anybody who's criticizing this and, and exposing what's really going on is going to be demonized and and portrayed as being uh, you know, sympathetic to ISIS or something. I mean, it, it's it's completely backwards because. How could they possibly possibly portray us <laughs> as being sympathetic to ISIS? We're saying that your governments are running ISIS. Yeah. You've, you've created yep. ISIS. You've, you're funding them. You support ISIS. You know, it's like you, you you've created this Frankenstein, and now you're trying to associate us with that Frankenstein, even though you're the one responsible. It's so Orwellian and bizarre to me. It's biological. Right, they, they, it is it is a mental disease that these politicians have. They're just completely drunk on power, to the point where they they don't even have to make any sense anymore. They can say anything, and and it just and then the mainstream media reports it like it's some credible thing, you know. We and we just sit here and laugh because it's comical, you know. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with political ponderology, but the the author Lobachevsky points out that there's always that that double-headed sort of approach when you have a, he calls it a pathocracy. It's like a government run by pathological individuals. 
and he shit points out that there's the the foreign war that's used to justify all the crazy stuff that they want to do at home, but there's also the internal war against anybody who's who's pointing out the fact that they're that the government is actually behaving like a bunch of murderous psychopaths. Right, I, I think that's right on the money, and you know it, it's it's cr- crazy to me how these psychopaths can consistently get positions of power, like Stephen Harper, mm-hmm. Obama. David Cameron, the the, the people, the, the French Prime Minister Hollande. Maybe it's just the nature of power that you know, if you're a psychopath and you're you're willing to to stab anybody in the back to get to the top, you're you're going to eventually rise to the top. I mean, yep. maybe yeah. that's just the nature of power. But I think power power probably attracts those pathological types because normal people, you know, just want to live their lives, get along, have a family, be happy. Pathologicals aren't, aren't happy unless they're dominating and destroying. So they have to get themselves into positions where they can do that and not be criticized or, or otherwise locked up right. for it. <laughs> so it's not that power corrupts. It's kind of that uh, power attracts the corrupted. <laughs> yeah. True, true. And, and, and this is why we, I guess we see politicians constantly involved in, in, in pedophile scandals. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, oh, yeah. They, they, not, they not only abuse, you know, Adults, in terms of waging warfare and whatnot, but they also want to dominate children, and any anything that gives them, you know, a rush. That, you know, this 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 like um, this mindset that they they control you and they dominate and they can get away with anything, and and they pretty much do, except for some isolated cases. But in in the major countries and the major powers, these politicians seem to be completely immune to to the law. You know. You have like these laws on the books about war crimes and and genocide and all all this stuff, um, and it's never applied to the the, the 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 big ringleaders, the big war criminals. They'll they'll snatch some like some middleman in Africa that they they put in power as like a puppet, and they'll mm-hmm. say, Ah, you're a war criminal. We're gonna send you to the Hague. But then, where's George Bush and Dick Cheney? Oh, they're free. They're walking. They're giving speeches for fifty thousand dollars a pop. Mm-hmm. You know, like all of the big war criminals, Netanyahu to the to the American and British leaders, are immune from it. You know, there's no such thing as international law. International law is this flowery thing that politicians throw around. It's never applied. It's never applied to the big powers, at least. And so what is it? It's nothing. It means nothing to anybody. I mean, if, if if it's not applied consistently, then it's worthless. And why are we still talking about it, you know? they And it, it's sort of predicated on a flawed premise, too, because the whole international law stuff emerged from the Nuremberg trials during World War II. But, it, you know, it, it, therefore, it, it's nothing more than a sham because... How can you have a war crimes trial at the end of a world war and only one side gets gets yeah. punished? You know, it's it's just a kangaroo court. You know, the the the, the victors judge the vanquished. I mean, I don't accept the legitimacy of that concept. If the Axis won, then 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 the Allies would have been on trial and, and would have been strung up. In fact, a lot of um, a lot of the, the the Allied powers in World War II, and I go into some World War II history in my other book, Grand Deceptions. They didn't even want a war crimes trial because they knew it would be complete hypocrisy, that they would be condemning their vanquished foes for things that they themselves were supremely guilty of themselves, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And none of them were – all of the allied powers, not a single high-ranking member of those governments were ever tried. 
for anything, yet they're still stringing up like 80-year-old Germans who are like security guards at a prison or something. You know, it's like they're, this is just more PR. And, and, and a lot of this stuff today stems from that, right? I mean, that the, the, the nation of Israel today is predicated on this victimhood mythology that they, that they inculcated and, and, and convinced everybody through Hollywood and, and the media to create a pretext for the existence of the state of Israel. And, and that was the, the, the real forces behind the whole Nuremberg thing with the Zionist groups, like the Allied leaders were, were saying, you know, we don't want a trial, we're guilty of aggressive warfare, we're guilty of invasion, we bomb, carpet bombed civilians in Dresden and Hamburg and nuked Japan and killed and, and carpet bombed Tokyo and killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And even after the war, they, they starved to death several million Germans and, their, and, and the Soviets committed mass rapes of German women and so forth. So it was, they, they knew it would be hypocrisy, but these Zionist organizations, mainly based out of the United States, wanted to see a Nuremberg trial because they wanted a narrative of victimhood. They wanted to create this kind of this 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 narrative that said, you know, we're the ultimate victims of this war, even though you know more Germans and Russians died than than Jews died in World War II. But they they, and they also wanted a verdict to say we get reparations money from Germany for what we claim happened during World War II, and then they used that money to, to finance Israel, right, to, to, to build the infrastructure of Israel and 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 and, and then create this propaganda uh, cloak to mask Israel's crimes, right? Because every mm-hmm. t- that, that former Israeli minister said, every time we commit a, a, a massacre in Gaza and Europeans criticize us, we bring up this Holocaust thing, right? We, we, we throw it in your face to shut you up. Just like the, the anti-Semite canard. Anytime you criticize Israel, they say you're an anti-Semite, which de facto is saying that that we're infallible. That if you if whatever we do, no matter how evil it is, if you criticize us, you're an anti-Semite. It's not that we, we're not going to challenge what you're saying or your claims about us, your charges against us. They could be completely valid and true. But we're just going to call you an anti-Semite because because you are criticizing us. Meaning we are above everybody else. We can do whatever we want. We can kill three thousand people in Gaza. We can kill five hundred children. Drop white phosphorus, and you're not allowed to criticize us because we're you know we're the chosen ones or whatever. So it, that stuff needs to be delineated too in, in, in connecting not only current events but just just the bedrock foundation. Of all of these things, because there's a lot of myths in history, you know, the victors write this history. We know that it's propaganda to serve the winners and 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 and, and shape this new world order that they had envisioned, and and create a foundation with which to 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 push for more draconian measures and and and, and evil policies. So it, it, it's to me. You know, we kind of have to not only current events and 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 things that are relevant to us today, but but also go back into history. And a lot of people in the alternative media kind of don't want to go to that because there's even laws, for example, in Europe um, that prevent you from doing that. You know, there's there's what are called Holocaust laws that prevent people from questioning any aspect of the story. Mm-hmm. Right, I mentioned they had a law called a 9/11 denial law that says you can't question any aspect of the even official narrative. 
9-11. I mean, that, that's, yeah, that's tyranny. probably that's tyranny. coming. That's tyranny. While they're fronting as democracies. Yeah, yeah there's even... Well, a, David Cameron gets his way. <laughs> there's even yeah. a book that goes into um, talking about... Doc- it shows documents where they prove, basically, that the Zionists were collaborating with the Nazis during World War II and encouraging them to kill more Jews. And it's it, like you, you look to these documents and you're just like, geez, it's just kind of obvious that a lot of the similar patterns we're seeing today where um, powers in Israel are kind of puppeting these, these other groups, it goes back to the beginning. And it's the same stuff, same song, different tune. All right. Brandon, are you still there? I did, certainly there wasn't. Right. It's cutting in and out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're cutting, you're cutting in and out, but um, uh, I think, yeah, okay. we went, we've gone about a half an hour over what we originally planned, but I think, uh, if you're cool, we'll sure. we'll just yeah we'll stop it there. And uh, I just want to thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, it's been really great having you on. Um, I just want to recommend your book again. Uh, the the latest is the ISIS conspiracy. You can get it on Amazon. And I want uh, to give out your your website nonalignedmedia.com. So yeah, everyone should check out the website. There's some great commentary and just uh, you know keeping up to date on on current events of, of all sorts. And uh, it's good for me because I, I am Canadian, so I like to get a little bit of the Canadian perspective too. So, um, so yeah, thank you, Brandon, for coming on again. Right. Thank, thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure and privilege. Great. Well, thank you. And, yeah, we'll hope to get you on again sometime. Thanks for coming, Brandon. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care, guys. Okay, take care. Well, he, he was just terrific. Um and and I kind of felt like uh you know, I was reminded a, a little bit of Douglas Reed's controversy of Zion. Yep. Um it's almost as though uh when did he write that in the mid 50s? Yeah, or something. It's almost as though he, you know, uh he were taking all the events of current day and and was putting it in that context. And like you said, Brent, you know, it's uh, same same dance, different song, or same. It's just the same pattern over and over again. Um, and once you see the pattern, it's kind of hard to miss. Yeah, it becomes obvious. It becomes perfectly obvious. Yeah. But again, if you don't study it, if you don't do the, take the time to you know read into it, to access information that you're not going to get in textbooks or in college classes, you're not going to see it. It's just it's not it's not obvious until you actually get into it and see it and then read and read and read and read. But it doesn't make sense logically. Well, in other in other news today, I just wanted to bring up a couple of things. Well, first of all, I want to come back a bit to the the Saudi invasion of Yemen and the, the bombing that's going on there. I just found it to be kind of mind-boggling the whole the whole narrative of it. Because if you think about what happened, Okay, so you had this leader, right, who was deposed in a coup, and then he flees the country looking for support from the con- another country that supports him. And so that country then says, oh, well, you know, we've got to protect the legitimacy of this of this government, and so we're going to, you know, send some military over there and get things done. Um, oh, sorry. I was talking about Crimea and uh, <laughs> there for a second. I, I got my my I narrative that switched. was coming <laughs> because that's kind of, you know that kind of sounds like what happened in Ukraine last year. 
where Yanukovych was taken out of power by a coup d'etat and he you know fled to to Crimea and then Russia and Russia basically said okay well we're going to we're going to support the legitimate leader of you know so-called legitimate leader of of Ukraine against the the people that took power in a in a violent coup and then the western governments and media you know what did they say russian aggression we can't stand by this this is totally horrible we're going to lay all these sanctions on russia and stop this from happening but it, so on the surface the, the events look quite similar but what was the response to to this saudi invasion oh well you know you won't see the word aggression used anywhere in the the western media about this this is a, a legitimate defense of this this uh, legitimate leader in yemen and not only that we're going to support saudi arabia in defending al hadi and we're going to support them in bombing yemen now compare this to you know russia and ukraine and crimea russia didn't invade they didn't bomb there were no you know they going to go to kiev and take over and uh, you know start bombing all these right sector guys um and when they annexed Crimea, what did they do? Oh, they had a, a democratic referendum that was organized by the, the authorities there in Crimea at the time. So, I mean, just the, the, the hypocrisy of that situation just astounds me how not only similar the, the situations were, but in their differences, the, the Yemen-Saudi Arabia thing is just so much worse, and yet it gets the full support of all of the Western nations and so-called the so-called you know Western civilization. So that's just a bunch of BS in my opinion. But um, it's in, pretty typical. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. they're constantly you know, you know when we do it, it's fine. But mm -hmm. if anybody else does it, oh, it's a huge big offense, and we have to go and stop them. And it's just it's just typical of the way pathological people think, and it just goes yeah. to show that these are the kind of people that we have running our our government, yeah. and it's disturbing to say the least. But speaking of Ukraine, just a little bit of news. Um, of course, I mentioned right sector. Now these were these were some of the guys that were heavily involved in the coup, and not only that, with the um, the torture and and killing of civilians in the in East Ukraine, what are now called the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. Now, right sector was so-called um, like volunteer battalions, so these guys weren't officially connected in any way with the official Ukrainian armed forces. But now, uh, that has changed. Uh, in the past few weeks, there was that conflict between the two, you know, two of the top oligarchs in Ukraine, Kolomoisky and Poroshenko. And Kolomoisky was the... the the uh, like leader of one of the provinces that was close to Donetsk. Uh, I can't pronounce the name of it, but anyways, he was he was forced to resign by Poroshenko, and he was one of the main backers of groups like the Right Sector. He has his, basically his own private armies that he's used for years to kind of you know take over other rival business interests, and he's. Pretty much a you know a big bully in Ukraine. You know when he wants something, he just gets his armed thugs to come and take it. And and he controls like one of the biggest private banks in Ukraine. 
he's got you know he had a lot of power, but uh, now uh, he has resigned. So there's probably some things going on in the in the background. But he was a supporter of right sector, and just in the past week, um, the leader of right sector, Dmitry Yarosh, um, or Yarosh, he uh, he agreed to some of Poroshenko's terms. Now, so what Poroshenko did is basically make right sector now an official part of the Ukrainian armed forces. So these aren't these uh, independent um, volunteer battalions anymore. They'll still remain volunteers, but they are now officially part of the Ukrainian armed forces. So what Poroshenko has done is take these uh, kind of lunatic neo-Nazi thugs and, you know, let them into the, yeah, let them into the fold. So it's a it's a strange it's a strange thing for a couple of reasons. One, because he's kind of made these neo-Nazi groups official. Uh, I guess now we can say that the Ukrainian army is officially, you know, Nazi, and that. Um, but at the same time, they they represent one of his biggest threats. So I'm wondering if he if he thinks that he can control them by having them. By giving them more power and, and official status in Ukraine, I don't know. I just think that's it sounds like a rerun from World War II history. Exactly, yeah. uh, the, the Kaiser, you know, um, giving Hitler more power, and everyone suspecting that it wouldn't come to very much. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, Hitler just grabbed more and more power and decided that he was uh, he was going to be it. They call that uh, grabbing the tiger by the tail. <laughs> one okay, one other thing from the news just yesterday, I believe, that caught my eye. The police in the US in the month of March have killed more people than the entire UK police force in the last hundred years. <laughs> US police killed a hundred one hundred and eleven people in March of this year. Wow. And that is more than in the past. 100 years in the UK. Yeah, I read stories every day now. I feel like they're coming. Where you know, unarmed man shot by police, guy with hands up shot by police. They raid the wrong house, and I mean, the, the number of stories and the kids too that have been killed or wounded. I mean, there was that baby that was injured by a flashbang. There was that seven-year-old. Uh, I can't remember her name. It was like Alicia something. She was shot when cops busted into her house and it was like the wrong house and his gun quote unquote accidentally discharged and she was sleeping on the couch and she was dead and it just happens over and over again there was that girl in Colorado she was driving her friends home late at night and the cops said that she had you know tried to assault them with her vehicle well the autopsy results showed that there was no way from the angle the bullets came in the cop had to have been standing at the side or behind the car so there's no way she could even have tried to hit him with the car and she was only like 17. Mm-hmm. And that that's just, just a few. I mean, there's a couple of good pages on Facebook that um, they post these stories. Cop Block is one of them. Uh, I think uh, Free Thought Project and Addicting Info also have a couple of them there. And they just, you know, every every day there's, there's more and more stories. And they seem to like to target um, brown people because I, I guess for some reason – you know, in the mainstream media, black and brown people are perceived as, as more violent and more criminal. And they are generally they're lower income, so they don't have the financial resources to, to defend themselves in court or to, you know, go after them after the fact when somebody gets killed. So they're they're kind of easy targets. 
And then you ask the question, you know, why? Why Why is all of a sudden an issue? Why are the police, you know, more violent than it seems like ever before? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think it goes back to uh, Michael Chertoff in the Bush administration in the early 2000s. You know, he encouraged collaboration between Israeli and American police departments. You know, they would send people over to Israel to get them trained. They'd come back and they'd retrain the police. And now it's all based on this, you know, presumption that, you know, anytime you feel that you're, your life is threatened, you just pull that trigger and you shoot to kill. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't teach these guys, you know, how hand-to-hand combat or effective ways to, to disarm people nonviolently or even, you know, negotiating tactics or, um, you know, like shooting to, to injure. Like you could totally shoot somebody in the leg, completely disable them, no problem, especially if they're unarmed or mentally disabled or whatever. But they don't teach them that. They, they want them to shoot them in the head, shoot them in center mass. And, and that's that's what they do. Well, you said a little earlier that, um, you know, positions of power uh, attract the corrupted. And so um, I don't think we've ever heard of uh, any psychological screening processes um, for being accepted as a police officer, uh, although maybe there were and I just don't know. Uh, but you have to wonder if uh, all of those types of standards separate from one's level of education have been thrown out the window because uh you know what what we're seeing here is um it's it's like a rise of the psychopaths in a way and uh there's something about being a police officer that's uh become very attractive to types who uh are quite willing to inflict violence at the drop of a hat. Mm. And, yeah, I, th- I think it's all connected in a certain way. And something like this may be more nebulous. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily think that this is a, you know, there, that there's a plan for it that's written down and scripted. But w- when you combine the sorts of things that, like the, w- the Brandon was talking about, about in, in geopolitical terms, you've got this psychopathic regime in Israel that for years has been, Manipulating um, like foreign foreign wars and just the, these whole geopolitical processes and destroying countries and influencing other countries at the same time doing so. There's got to be uh, a social effect from that kind of influence that just kind of uh, well. Brandon described ISIS in Iraq as kind of a and in Syria as a cancer that's basically infecting the region. Well, it's the same thing when you look at the whole neoconservative war plan it is that mentality is uh, a cancer that is infecting western nations and not only western nations but then the people on the receiving end of it in the middle east and in countries all over the world so you have this this psychopathic mentality that is influencing and directing foreign policy and governments and that that filters down to, to the very you know to the police on the streets and so it is this culture of psychopathy and this mentality is just all over the place. And so it ends up reaching every possible social level, you know, down to the down to the household. And uh, emotionally, physically, mentally, we have people, you know, who will believe these lies just because they're told on the states or on, on, the, on the news. And then so they have a completely backwards view of the world and what's actually going on and that's the that's exactly what psychopaths want they want people to believe their narrative so that they 
can fulfill their objectives. It's a, it's just a total propaganda um, technique. And then emotionally, you have you see people just uh, assimilating these psychopathic values to a greater or lesser extent. And so uh, you, we just live in this culture that is so psychopathic to the to the point where you know the police can kill 111 people in a month, and they're there's no, you know, mass uprising or you know a, a change in government. Uh, how, how you know how can people just accept that sort of thing? Um, I think that probably many don't accept that sort of thing. But then you have you know, you come up against that that uh, manufactured reality where um, you know even if there are other people that may see things the way you do, if you watch the news. You know, you you you'll see yourself as a, as a minority view, and oh well, you know, I guess I guess I must be crazy for thinking these sorts of things. And uh, but yeah, that effect of uh, like what your peers think and how it affects individuals then that's been documented in a mm-hmm. couple different studies. So it shows that you know if a bunch of people, you know, your peer group, <clears throat> or even if you perceive your peer group to to have a certain set of beliefs, you'll kind of and even unconsciously sort of switch your your beliefs to kind of fit in with them just on the basis of how our brains are hardwired. Because, you know, when we were, uh, you know, tribal back in the day when humans were evolving, it was very important to fit into your peer group in order to survive. So we have that sort of intense survival instinct to fit in and, and to feel the need to fit in. Um, and, you know, if you're not you know networking with like-minded individuals or or even knowing that they're out there, then you're going to you know, just go with the flow and accept what you're told. And, and that kind of serves to minimize your anxiety because, you know, the idea that a, a cop can just, you know, walk up to your house, you know, you're outside on your porch diddling on your phone, cop walks up, you know, and says some words to you and maybe, you're, you know, he can just shoot you for whatever he perceives as an offense and then get away with it. That's extremely, you know, that, that'll make anyone nervous. Mm-hmm. And the only way that you can, uh, you know, somebody outside of that that's looking in can sort of minimize their anxiety is to, you know, justify it, you know, blame the victim and, you know, oh, they, they did this or they did that or they deserved it. And it, that kind of, you know, makes the, the outside observer, you know, just feel a little bit better that, oh, maybe it won't happen to me. Right. I, I think uh, fear plays a huge part in this. Uh, you know, when you're stuck in the throes of fear, um, you lose your cognitive faculties. You're not uh, able to address things objectively and uh, anything to uh, extricate yourself from a situation, uh, even if it's um, even if it's you know foisting the blame or deflecting on another, uh, feels safer somehow. I'm not you know, I'm not that person. Sure, you know I'll go through your heavy you know your your uh, your scanner, or you'll capitulate in a number of different ways. In, in actual reality, it's it's making you less safe because you're unaware of the very real probability that harm could come to you or your loved ones. So it, it's kind of it's backwards in a way. You know, it makes you feel better, but in reality, it makes you actually much more likely to be hurt. And that's the the same dynamic with the the false flag scenario, like Brandon was talking about, where you have this manufactured enemy. And then the the PR campaign starts just to to ramp up the the fear among a population like the the members of the so-called coalition force against ISIS. And so you have these 
my, relatively minor terrorist attacks in these various countries in order to ramp up the fear and get the backing for these new legislations that just happened to take away more of the rights and freedoms that were guaranteed before then, but, you know, which weren't actually there in the first place. And so just like the the that fear mentality in the you know in the examples you guys are talking about it's it actually makes makes you less safe because now you're now you're at the uh, now you're underneath and subject to uh, a supreme power in your own country that probably doesn't have your best interests at heart. No, they can just, you know, they don't like something you're saying online, they don't like something on your Facebook page, they can show up at your house, knock at your door, throw you in a you know, a hole somewhere, and yeah. and that's it. <laughs> it only happens to other people. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, there's nothing to worry about. Well, um, on the subject of uh, kind of this um, psychopathic, fear-inducing uh, paranoia that's, that seems to be spreading in all these different spheres of, of life and society, uh, Max Slavo of uh, uh, Shit fan plan uh, had an interesting piece on the subject of um, how uh, just getting your money out of banks uh, has been a a very challenging uh, thing of late Um, and coming on the heels of uh, our discussion uh, last week with uh, Fernando Aguirre, I I thought it was very interesting. in his article, he states that ConsumerAffairs.com reported on many customers who've been shut out of their funds due to suspicious activities, reporting including cases where small business owners were considered potentially money launderers for conducting ordinary business by sending out checks to pay bills and employee salaries. So he's got this interesting quote here um, from uh, one such uh, lady who has a business. And she writes, uh, I am a sole proprietor with a small business and have my income direct deposited into my checking account at uh, at 5-3. That was the date. Uh, three days ago, I went into the bank to get money orders, and they treated me like I was robbing the bank. After about 40 minutes, they gave me the money orders, and unknown to me, had placed two half-a-million-dollar holes on my accounts with them. I was told it looked like money laundering and was treated like I had done something wrong, she said. They won't give me my money, and I can't pay my employees nor my bills. They basically stole my money, and I have to fight to get it back. So, uh, again, under the pretense of being um, uh, a terrorist, a criminal, a money launderer, whatever title they decide to, uh, whatever name, uh, label, they conveniently uh, decide to give you, uh, they will withhold your money. And um, this isn't such an isolated case. I mean, this is a a systemic uh, situation that we're now facing. Um, And the article goes on. It says, policies in the United States, many of them established under terrorism laws, already require banks to automate monitoring and reporting of any suspicious transactions, including any transfers above $3,000, large cash withdrawals, all currency exchange activities, and dozens of other details about individual accounts. The laws even give banks legal immunity from any harm or false imprisonment that may come from false reporting suspicious activities. 
and he goes on to say, as shit hit the fan reported a few days ago, banks have even been ordered uh, to seize cash from customers and alert police over large cash activities. The Justice Department has ordered bank tellers across America to contact law enforcement if they suspect your cash withdrawal may have something to do with illicit activity. There doesn't need to be proof or any sort of red flag indicator. Merely suspicion by the bank teller processing your transaction is now enough to have you investigated by authorities. Yeah, I have a Wells Fargo account, and I don't like to keep <clears throat> large sums of money in the bank just because I don't, I don't trust it. So when it gets over a certain amount, I, w- I make a withdrawal and I kind of just you know tuck it away. And last time I did it, um, I took out I think it was about five thousand dollars, and I just noticed the teller very casually, oh, are you, you know, are you going on vacation? Are you buying a car? And I just made something up. I you know I said I was like you know sorry I was going to buy a motorcycle or. I was doing some home improvements. I can't remember what I said exactly, but you know, you just kind of casually, you mm-hmm. kind of have to engage in that sort of strategic dance because you know that they're not just, you know, happily ask, asking those questions just right. because they they're curious about you know your situation. They didn't, they you know for them you know they have to give you that money. They're like, oh, why am I? Why does this guy want want a whole bunch of money? You know, like what's he going to do with that? Well, it's like uh, see something, say something. Yeah, exactly. You know, you had. Uh... In in uh, Eastern Germany, um, in the fifties, or rather the sixties, the seventies, and the eighties, until uh, until the Berlin Wall came down, uh, you had one in every fifty people uh, kind of reporting to the Stasi uh, on suspicious activities, and this creates a culture and climate of of fear and paranoia, and um, that's just another way they're getting to us. All right. Well, I think that's it for today. We're running up on the end of our second hour. So thank you again to Brandon. Uh, check out his website, nonlinemedia.com. And, yeah, it's been great. We today, you know, thanks again to our co-hosts here, William, Brent, Ilan, and thank you from myself. Thank you, Harrison. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, everyone take care, and we will... See you next week.